This is a very special episode of No Nonsense. It's a bit of a meander down memory lane. For many years as host of Canada AM, I had the real pleasure of convening our now infamous Thursday morning political panel. Hugh Siegel, Michael Kirby, Jerry Kaplan, reunited once again. Welcome back to Canada AM. It's 20 minutes before the hour. It's Thursday morning. So, of course, it's time for our political panel. A throne speech next week. The government sending mixed signals. Let's find out what Michael Kirby, Jerry Kaplan and Hugh Siegel have to say. Well, Michael, the throne speech, what do you make of it? Well, I think it's going to focus on continuing to deal with pandemic issues and in particular people who've been hurt by the pandemic with perhaps a lot uh, less focus on the total impact on the, on the budget or on government expenditures than, uh, than the Conservatives might want. But uh, since this thing doesn't seem to be over, and since there are an awful lot of Canadians hurting, that's where their emphasis should be. Hugh Siegel, a lot of talk about guaranteed annual income, an issue that you've been fighting for for decades. Do you think it'll be there or not? I doubt if it'll be there in a very explicit way. Um, I think the government will want to keep its options open and they will do, I think Michael's correct, they're going to focus on the kind of COVID support process and what can be done and has to be done in terms of public health and other investments. Then I think they'll make passing reference to uh, presenting measures in the budget that will address issues around equality of opportunity and other things. They'll be very vague. I mean, throne speeches are the menu Mm -hmm. and the budget tends to be the recipe. Um, But there's quite a large liberal constituency, both in the caucus and in the country. I noticed the United Church is holding a vigil. I mean, you know, you can't get more liberal than any of that. Uh, And that's good. And um, so I think they're not going to shut it down, but they're going to be as vague as they possibly can. Jerry, your thoughts on the throne speech? Well, I think it's largely inconsequential to most Canadians who won't even know it happened and who don't know that there is this humongous media foo Uh, When Mr. Trump talks about false news, uh, you should look at the media here, how it creates entire issues that barely exist for the country at large. Uh, But having said that, I know it is the the, the great obsession in Ottawa and uh, all the media flack who have to call it, who think they have to cover it. I don't think they have to cover uh, every uh, nuance of it. Um, uh, And I think the liberals are in fact deadly afraid of having an early election, that it would rebound on them. That the notion of an unnecessary, heartless election in the middle of COVID uh, could be a great, great card for the Conservatives and NDP. And uh, people will say, look at New Brunswick. You don't look at New Brunswick and you want to know what Canada's, how Canada is going to vote. Right. It's no, uh, no parallel whatsoever. Uh, so I think uh, I will spend the day uh, reading and napping, uh, as distinct <laughs> from the other days in which I nap and read. <laughs> you know, I just... In that, in that, he'll be like a lot of members of the Senate, I suspect, <laughs> on that day. <laughs> no, it's in our I, chamber. I we have to pay attention. <laughs> I've, I've just got to say, this just instantly took me back. Now, I know some of you are her, who are listening just wondered, why the heck was she talking about Canada AM and it being Thursday morning and all the rest? I met with these three guys. I spent every Thursday morning with them on and off for at least a decade. Mm-hmm. We did every election uh, night coverage together. We did so many. Th- these were the brightest political minds of the day. 
They came in every Thursday morning for 20 minutes. The show that went on in the green room was often more interesting than the show that went on uh, on camera because in the green room, you actually found out what they really thought. But you know what? You're not doing a bad job today of actually telling me what you really think. So we just wanted to reconvene this, uh, the Thursday morning political panel. It really was. Well, uh, Pam, let me just say that when I had the privilege with my colleagues of being on your panel, that is when I had the highest public awareness in the country. And Canadians being forever polite would stop me in elevators and say, uh, aren't, you, aren't you the sports guy on Canada AM? And I was, I was 280 pounds at the time. And I said, what would ever make you think I was the sports guy anywhere? But nevertheless, that was, that was one of those great moments in my life. And now that I'm in complete and utter obscurity... I'm grateful for the chance to have been part of your panel. Well, you know, and it's well, the still- funniest thing. Uh, funniest thing for me is that I've done a lot of uh, CBC panels until I quit the whole game a few years ago when I got ill, um, and I've also done a few patents. And people do still come up to me with with less frequency, but they do, and they say, "God, I remember you on Canada AM." Right. Which, well, we, which we haven't done for, I, I don't even know, 30 years. Well, that was the 80s. Well, I'm thinking. I have to tell you, the, the best anecdote I have is sitting on a subway train in Toronto reading a newspaper. And um, this man who in those days I thought was elderly, I wouldn't think he's elderly now because <laughs> then I'd be older. But uh, he, he comes up to me and he says, I'm really surprised, very stern voice. I'm really surprised you didn't say hello to me. And I, you know, you're frantically thinking back in your mind, where have you met this guy? And I finally said, I'm sorry, sir, I can't remember where we've met. And he said, how's that possible? You're in my bedroom every Thursday morning. <laughs> well, and I, and I remember in our first panels, Pam gave us the following advice, because, you know, we were serious policy guys. Michael was in the Senate. I was an advisor to a prime minister. Jerry was an executive director of a major political party. And Pam would say, just keep this in mind. Half our audience is naked and the other half is asleep. So don't get carried away with how important this is. And that helped us, I think, giggle our way through a bit on occasion when it was actually worth a giggle. It was, was the really only appropriate true. response. And I talked about was what was in the green room. And that really was interesting because... Perhaps unlike today, I don't know, I'm going to ask you this question. You guys weren't that far apart on many of the major issues. You did have to rep represent your party's view and what they were doing. But when you were talking substance about whether this was a good idea or a bad idea, there actually wasn't that much difference on the spectrum. Do, am I just remembering that incorrectly or Michael? No, I, I think what uh, what has changed is the and we've picked it up from the States largely, I guess, and maybe the UK, is the extreme partisanship which yeah. now prevails. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the three of us became friends, really mm -hmm. good friends. And that doesn't happen very much in politics anymore, where people are just inherently personalize every issue and feel that if someone disagrees with you on a policy point of view, then you must not like them uh, from an individual personal point of view. And that, I mean, that's true in Canada. We're not as vicious as the States, but it's we'll not, get there. And it was, a, it was true for the media as well. I mean, we did not yes. suit up and become a member of a team like 
what we watch now with CNN or Fox or MSNBC or Fox, you, there there is no fact. It's opinion. It's it's yes. their own personal views. And and it but was we very different. Amb- we were ambitious and serious about our parties. Right. Yeah. Um, and it became necessary for us to is pretend too strong a word, but to act as if we were monumentally divided and could never come together. Right. Uh, somehow we didn't feel that as human beings. And as I said before, uh, we went out uh, together. The, our, we went out at least once or twice to a dinner with our wives, the uh, three of us. Uh, and we used to do, we used to say we did bar mitzvahs and weddings. And, <laughs> <laughs> we did do some of that. <laughs> I, I, remember, um, I remember during the free trade debate. Yeah. And it was one of the interesting, it was, it was an indicator of where the public was when, when there was excessive partisanship. There'd be parts during the free, the free trade election when we would go at each other, hammer and tong. Yeah. And the switchboard would light up with people complaining. Yeah. They actually wanted us to discuss what was in the free trade agreement, right. what the context was. And, and, but our party, our party, our partisans, our headquarters were all excited because we'd gone at each other, hammer and tong. When we did the opposite, when we we take up a, a chunk of the free trade agreement, something like water or whatever, and actually talk about with content, right. the lights would go on at the switchboard at CTV and say, well, why can't we have them go on for longer? Because this is the only way we're going to find out what's in the goddamn agreement. Yes, right? So um, that was part of, uh, that's when I think it became perfectly clear that while partisans were watching, which is understandable, yeah. um, a lot of people were watching because they saw it as a legitimate source of information even from three different points of view, well, which you don't you don't get as much of these days. And the other thing at that time, just to put it in the context, is these things did run Thursday morning. Right. It started at 740 right. and it went to the top of the clock. Correct. That was 20 minutes. Huge. Sometimes it went longer. Now, if you can get three minutes of ice time right. on a major topic, that would be excessive. And I, um, used, to, I right. used to say at the expense of my colleagues, I, when I was speaking, out doing a speech somewhere and people would, you know, Canada AM would be part of the introduction. Mm-hmm. I'd say, well, look, Michael's a liberal and Michael believes and he would say that these are our liberal principles. But if you don't like them, we have others. <laughs> And then I would unfairly, Michael, I've heard you and say then that. I would say unfairly <laughs> about Jerry. Jerry is a new Democrat, and therefore he believes that there's no situation so bad that government doesn't have the right to make it worse. Right. <laughs> and then I would say about myself, and I joined as a member of the opposition. I was an opposition person. I used to say, you cannot trust anybody in government. Then we formed a government and we kept that promise. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that was part of it. I mean, of course you took your job seriously and your work seriously and even your party seriously, but you didn't take yourselves that seriously. And and I think that was refreshing. Sorry, Pam, we did feel (laughs) that we had a, a responsibility to also be if not wise at least vaguely serious sometimes yes absolutely uh, i think i told this story on air that one day my wife carol walked into her office and uh one of uh the secretaries there said to her gosh i loved the panel this morning uh and carol didn't even know she watched the panel and the the secretary said oh yeah you know i never finished i never went to university this is my political science course mm-hmm. i couldn't do without this that was pretty flattering. And it was. Uh, and made you feel you had to uh, yeah. be vaguely uh, sensible 
Now, the other thing was that the parties, this was a pressure I sometimes felt. The parties expected us to be partisan. Yes. Our parties. I'm sure that's true of the other two, too. Yes. And we yes. were just there to have a good time and kibitz and be uh, fun and lovable. But that, <laughs> that we were there to push the, to push the party line. And uh, when we didn't, uh, they got pissed off. I told them to go stuff it. But uh, they still they did that for years. When I used to defend well, and, and the other thing was that we all agreed. If you're going to be on the air at 20 to 8 in the morning and if you're going to get anybody to pay attention to you, you better be entertaining. Mm-hmm. And entertaining doesn't mean bombastic. Entertaining means explaining what you're trying to do in serious right. terms, but also having an element of humor so you can jab at somebody in a funny way, not in a personal and way. And still make your and point. I, yeah, yeah and I'm convinced that, that that our approach to being to recognizing the time of day, or <laughs> as, as my guy who watched all the time saw me in his bedroom every Thursday morning, um, that that our recognition among the three of us that we had to be entertaining as well was really critical to the success. The word I like was irreverent. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Which all yes. three of us like being. When, yeah, I think that's when, true. When Mulroney was prime minister for the first term and a half before I joined his staff, so I was always often defending what the government was doing. Right. And uh, one of the ways that Michael would deal with a defense that I would offer, which I thought was deeply substantive and thoughtful and <laughs> etc., Michael would say. Let me translate what Huey means to say, right. and then he would then he would put it in his words, right. um, which usually may have been more accurate than what I had said to begin with. Uh, and then Jerry would come and say, "Well, the problem with the two old parties is yes, right. etc." But that became a it was a good rhythm, and it was by the way never largely inaccurate. There was no, a measure no. of accuracy and, in all of it. And you'd all been in different places. You had been in power. You'd been out of power. Oh, yeah. And, and so yeah. you could see it from those vantage points. Uh, I, I just want to go back a little bit. Huey, you always tell this story about, because I'm curious, we're talking about partisanship, How like why you all became what you became. Um, you know, Huey, you've just done a book about your own family history, it would lead many to believe that you might be more a New Democrat than a Conservative, but you had a, a moment that well, changed I was your Well, I was very fortunate that in, in a classic kind of strategy, which you do in an election campaign, in a riding where you have no hope, John <laughs> Diefenbaker in 1962 came to speak to the United Talmatora Day School in downtown Montreal. <laughs> Uh, which was right in the middle of a very, very safe liberal riding. It was Alan J. McNaughton's riding. He was a liberal speaker of the House and was about to become Mr. Trudeau's riding before the 65 general election. And why do you do that? Well, you do that because you have to be shown, seen as shown flag. You get a high school full of parents and kids are going to be respectful because you are prime minister, even though you're down in the polls. And you never know how you may unnerve the other side simply by going to their, their you know, one of their, their really safe. Yeah. yeah. But he came and he made a remarkable speech. And I was like 12 and I was just swept away by his persona, what he talked about, the notion of, uh, of uh, freedom of expression, the Canadian Bill of Rights, which had passed the House of Commons under him. Exactly. And uh, and so it became a salient moment. And I remember that very night I went home and sat around the dinner table to my gang, my family, my grandfather, 
Maizeda, who was an organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, <laughs> and my father, who'd been a liberal uh, riding uh, regional guy for Milty Klein, the MP from Montreal, Cartier, uh, that I was so impressed with Mr. Diefenbaker, I was going to be volunteering for the local conservative <laughs> candidate. And then my father said those wonderful words, over my dead body. So, you know, some preteens have sex and rock and roll. I had the conservative Super party. party. So the commitment was totally emotional, long before I understood what it actually what stood it, for. What it meant. And then, then you're already in the box, so you had to stay there. But I'm simplifying it, but that's how it happened for oh, me. Okay, Mike, take it away. Well, well it, it's funny. I had just gone back. Uh, I went to the States, uh, did a PhD, came back, was just started teaching at Dalhousie. And it was a provincial election in Nova Scotia. I was completely part nonpartisan, hadn't even really thought about political parties. And it was an election uh, in which the Conservatives had 46 seats and uh, 42 seats and the Liberals had four. So it was a total lost cause for Good the balance. Liberals. Good balance. Good balance. Good <laughs> balance. And uh, a friend of mine was a Liberal campaign manager uh, and he couldn't get anybody to work for him. So I said, OK, come on. I look, I'm want to know how campaigns work, I'll gladly come do some stuff for you. So I ended up uh, as chair of the strategy committee only because there was no one else, right? <laughs> that, that, that's the, not because I deserved it. And due to a whole series of complete and utter flukes entirely beyond our control, uh, we won. Now, the, the, the problem of winning under those circumstances is that immediately people think, God, you must be a political genius. You really knew what you were doing, <laughs> which, which, of course, is categorically not true. And about two days later, the premier said, you're coming. I've arranged for the university already to give you a leave of absence and you're coming into my office as chief of staff. <laughs> how I got started. <laughs> and you became the most brilliant liberal strategist in Canada. Uh, ever. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, ever. Jerry, <laughs> this is so funny. Jerry, how did Michael, how just... Michael's is a perfect uh, Peter Principle story that I've ever heard. <laughs> quite wonderful, eh? You rise yeah. to a level beyond your capacity. But I'm sure you learned, Michael. Um, my uh, story is a kind of... Uh, offshoot of, uh, of shoes because of the ethnicity. I grew up in a large Jewish family uh, in which, to my knowledge, I, and this, this was uh, by osmosis because nobody ever talked about it, I knew they all voted liberal, except I had one wonderful uncle who called himself a labor Zionist uh, and stressed the labor part as much <laughs> as the Zionist part. In other words, he was a, a socialist. Right. Um, and none of which had the slightest effect on me. Uh, the only thing I cared about in high school uh, was, uh, besides uh, smoking and girls, was uh, uh, anti-Semitism and, for some reason that I've never understood, racism. Even then, uh, it was it was clear, it was knowledgeable. We had one black woman in our class at uh, at Harvard Collegiate. Uh, she turned out to be uh, Zanena Kunde for those oh, wow. of you. Remember the NDP government? Yep. Distinguished member minister of the crown. Uh, yep. So those were social justice issues, but they were not partisan issues uh, whatsoever. Uh, and then when I got to university where I was a true, I wasn't even agnostic because I didn't even think about these things. Uh, I was somewhere one night uh, with a bunch of other people who I hardly knew. 
And Stephen Lewis came up to me. This is 1957. This is a long time ago. Michael, wow. you weren't even born. Uh, <laughs> I was seven. I was seven what we're years old. Claim. I was seven years that's old. And said, look, I'm going out to meet a bunch of interesting people after this. You want to come? And I, he took me to the downstairs of Trinity Hall at the University of Toronto, right. which was which was like a graveyard. Yes. It was gray and dark and awful. It was like being in a poor British uh, university. Uh, and there were uh, Terry Greer. Wow. Uh, who you all know, and Andy Bruin. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Both, both became members of parliament. And they and four others were the CCF to be NDP in at the University of Toronto period. Wow. Uh, and for some reason or other, it bit part of me that I didn't even know I had. And uh, I stayed with them uh, for the last uh, seven or 800 years. <laughs> what, what do you like? Those are compelling stories, very different stories. I mean, you didn't, it wasn't like you made this huge choice, but today, what do you think drives people to team up, to put on a Jersey? Well, um, I mean, I think the biggest problem is exactly the excessive partisanship in that it, it teams you up with people who are of a different point of uh, you know, against the people who are of a different point of view. So you're not teamed up in favor of something. You're teamed up because you want to defeat somebody else or you want to beat yeah. up on somebody else. Yeah. So it, it's entirely antagonistic. Uh, as opposed to a positive experience. And that's what you really see reflected in the so-called negative advertising and the comments uh, that that people have made. And of course, uh, President Trump has carried that to extremes that nobody would have believed was possible. Right. In, in his last year as, as leader of the party, Mr. Stanfield made a really, really interesting speech uh, where he talked about the uh, weakening of the political infrastructure, the political parties, and he didn't, he didn't, he didn't relate it to any intrinsic problem in the parties. He said too many people are staying away from political parties because they know in a political party, whether you're a new Democrat or a liberal or a conservative, progressive conservative, you you may have an issue that's important to you, but you have to compromise with mm -hmm. other people because that's how a team puts together the sense of competence and coherence and people are they're withdrawing to special interest groups. Right. And, 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 right. and, and then he talked about how special interest groups and charities with certain interests get more appropriate tax consideration for their funding than is the case. And I would say now, when I look at the present conservative caucus and I note that 44 members have a triple a rating from the uh, pro-life uh, various coalitions across Canada, I think we have to we have to accept that in in some some political parties, people are getting into politics because they see it as a way of advancing a particular concern yes, about which they're very passionate. They have every right to be passionate, but the notion that they're getting into a political party because they see it as an instrument to serve the broad public interest, maybe a bit to the left or a bit to the Despite right. Despite the bit fact to the center. that the last five conservative leaders have said, we're never going to raise that issue but, ever again. But, but, but your question yeah. was, how do you get into yeah. politics yeah. and why do you get into politics? So I think there's a little bit of that. I also think that um, part of the new digital age has produced a kind of, uh, I mean, in, in our day, 
you know, if you weren't actually working in the political process or a volunteer in the writings, then you might have been working on the advertising side or the polling side. And that right. was, well, that whole third area has grown massively. Right in terms of uh, uh, social media communications and stuff. And a lot of people are drawn into the to the political frame because it's a great way to be in that business. And I'm not I'm not being critical of that. I'm right. just saying it's different. It's a different from entry the way point. it was 25 or 30 years ago. That's all. Well, and the influence of it, I mean, well, I'm, I'm going to come to you in a second, Jerry, but we just, we, I mean, we were talking about the throne speech at the beginning. The throne speech 10 days ago, is was a very different document that what we're going to see next week because the polling results came out and said COVID's still top of mind. There's been a, an issue, you know, we can't go too green too fast. And it's all because of polling, not brilliant strategists like the three of you who may be reading the polls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were we, we were not we were not without the ability no, no, I know. Uh, to it's let just... the polls give us a bit of advice down in one in one direction or another. To be fair, so but it wasn't as intense a presence in our life yeah. as it was as, as it, is, it now. is now. Jerry, sorry, that's... I didn't want to interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, no, that's okay. Um, I, I think it's an interesting question because I'm not sure exactly of the answer. Uh, uh, I have lost a lot of touch with my old party, with the NDP. Uh, age does that. Geography does that. I don't know longer live in Toronto, I live in a small city. Uh, but I say for the people I've met in this small city, they feel like I did many years ago, and I think they have a problem. The problem is their party never wins. So mm -hmm. why do you join it? Why are you in it if power is the way you're going to implement your, your issues? So I came up way, uh, way long ago in my MA thesis with a proposition that I've pushed ever since, uh, which is that our real influence is being able to make the liberals especially, and once in a famous incident with uh, the conservatives when Hugh was the interlocutor between the Ontario provincial government and uh, the NDP, uh, how, how we sorry how they introduce our cherished um, uh, reforms by themselves, and we can then say, you see, that's what we're good for. I don't care for power. I don't live for power. I live to make the world better. And if you and Michael want to do that for me, uh, because we have enough strength to convince them to do that, then that's enough for me. And that was for a long time enough for me. And because we're all old friends, I'm going to say that it's not clear whether that still works anymore. The NDP has been a strange animal uh, ever since Jack died. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when Mulcair took us into uh, a no debt, no deficit uh, election uh, that seemed to put a, uh, a hammer to the notion that we were different from the others. Uh, and it makes, uh, makes it harder to say if I, I have two uh, teenage uh, granddaughters and I don't know how I would persuade them that the NDP should be the way they make life better. That was always uh, the tension in the party, though. Were you the conscience of the nation, and and or or did you want power, and you you couldn't well, really I do both? That was a, the silliest argument I ever heard. I would say to those who argued, "Of course, we want power." I said, "That's a good idea. How do you think we're going to get there?" <laughs> Since those of us who've been trying for fifty years have completely <laughs> failed, what is your secret when you tell us we've got to go for power? Should we what, what should we say that we haven't said? What what should yeah. we believe that we haven't believed? 
So I, I never took them as serious people. One one of the things that I took me as serious people. One of the things that I like to do when I'm when I'm lecturing in political science classes and stuff yeah. and history classes, I say, you know, we do have different political parties and they do have strong opinions and different views and you know and there's intensity there. But let's look at the let's look at how things actually happen in Canada, right? So the great sovereign province of Saskatchewan brings in <laughs> universal health insurance right. under a guy called Tommy Douglas, who's a Baptist preacher. Let's be clear. Right? Exactly. The leader and the prime minister of Canada uh, in 1963 is also from Saskatchewan, and his name is John Diefenbaker. Not a Baptist preacher. Could have been, <laughs> however. Uh, and he said, well, we better find out about this. Yeah. And he got Mr. Justice Emmett Hall to do a report. And the report was about it, and it was submitted not to Deef because he was defeated in 63, but to Mike Pearson. And Mike Pearson then went about, by the way, between 65, between 63 and 68, never had a majority, not once, implementing Tommy Douglas's universal health insurance right across the country with a series of fiscal relations mm -hmm. and supports for et cetera. So now it's the third rail of Canadian politics. Nobody can oppose it. But that yeah. all three parties were necessary for that to happen and for it to become fundamental. So that, I think, if you think about the things that really matter in Canadian yeah. political life, you often have to get that kind of triple parentage. And then that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But it raises the question for me, and Michael, I want to hear from you on this. Can we do any big projects like that anymore. Honestly, we can't even seem to have a national policy on how we deal with COVID or something. That Those grand ideas, we, we had this discussion in the Senate at one point about a, a national energy corridor across the country, and it would all be negotiated with um, Indigenous groups and the provinces would sign on. I mean, everybody would come and testify at the Senate. And then when they were getting up to leave the meeting, they'd say, you know, this is never going to happen. Right? I mean, you're never going to get provinces and feds to agree. Michael, can we ever have another well, national project? Uh, the Constitution. <laughs> but it's much, much less likely. I think the, the last big national project was the Constitution, yeah. which was national in the sense that at least nine of the ten provinces agreed with the feds. But, uh, but that's getting harder and harder to do because each individual provincial premier will play to uh, his own audience, and he, even if he was the same of the same party as the the prime minister, uh, it's not at all clear that uh, he would necessarily, because he was of the same party, automatically go along with him. And as I said, I, I I think it's much easier today to tell people what you're against, yeah, as opposed to tell them what you're for. And the idea of going out and selling a positive image of of anything. Uh, has become almost impossible. And Jerry made reference to social media. I mean, it's social media that kills it, right? Because uh, the forces opposed to whatever it is you want to do have a huge communications ability that they never had before. They can use social media to reach every corner of the country uh, with huge volumes of people and comments. And so even at the embryonic stage, while you're trying to begin to get an idea out and starting to build support for it, uh, you, you don't really have a chance to even get off the ground before you're being hammered. So I think 
the likelihood of uh, that kind of uh, national project. I said, look, the only reason the Constitution worked is that Bill Davis, uh, as a conservative premier of Ontario, and Dick Hatfield, as a conservative premier of New Brunswick, uh, teamed up with a liberal prime minister to, to make it work. But that was the, the work of three individual politicians, much more than leaders, and they dragged uh, all kinds of other people along with them. Well, or Peter Lougheed reaching out to René Levesque, right? Having, yes. There was so much that was possible behind the scenes when, I mean, you, you've raised it, so I'm, I'm going to go there, which is social media. It, it's so hard because a, a fact is stated. Well, it's not a fact. A, a piece of information is stated, and it, it may be true or false. It goes everywhere. By the time you try to correct it or support it, it's too late. Everybody believes that already. What's is that the great fact. line that the lie has gone halfway around the world before the truth puts its pants on? Yes, you know? exactly. And right. that's even more intense now because of social media. Uh, Jerry, do you want to pick up on social media? Uh, yeah, listen, I ran one national campaign, three provincial campaigns, all kinds of writing campaigns. And I wouldn't know how to begin today. I am completely baffled about how you intrude into somebody else's uh, computer and how I find out whether you're intruding or not. That's an entire world that I can't grasp at all. In my day, we had one genius working at National NDP headquarters who seemed to know all of this, but nobody else ever had to do that. So I wouldn't even know where to begin to run a campaign, and I feel helpless. Uh, personally, uh, and I think the Democrats were helpless against uh, all those who broke into their system. And it wasn't just the Russians, it was Republican, young Republican punks all over the place who became Breitbart and all that stuff. Uh, these, these anonymous groups who some, who you've never heard of, who one day are, are, are credited with destroying Hillary Clinton. Uh, and God knows what they're now doing to Joe Biden and what the Democrats are trying to do to Trump. Well, that's uh, the so thing. I, Everybody's yeah. using it. Everybody's using it against each other. Does it mm -hmm. neutralize each other? Uh, we, we have no idea. Uh, but it terrifies me that it's completely out of human control. Yeah, I, I must say, I've, I've been surprised at the um, general consensus in the political community not to do in a regulatory way about that stuff. What we always did about the other media in a regulatory way, the Election mm -hmm. Act was very clear. Right. When you could buy ads, when uh, how much you could spend. Balancing. Et cetera. If I had you fair on. Fair comment. Had, the notion yep. of fair comment. Yep. And, and, you know, and, and uh, from time to time, the regulator would act. Mm -hmm. um, but now there doesn't seem to be any will to engage because it seems to be too complex. I would argue, and I'm a, this is an old. No, old I, I, I don't think it's complex. I think, I mean, technologically complex. I think the problem is that, and, and Pam, you suggested it earlier when you said something was a fact and then you changed it and <laughs> said, well, th th this is a, you know, opinion or whatever. It's a piece of the information. The yeah. is that if you start uh, deciding that certain things shouldn't be allowed because they're not facts, uh, then wh whoever is making that decision uh, clearly has a set of values that are going to be reflected in 
those decisions. So there is no objective, um, non-arbitrary way of deciding what you eliminate. And therefore, unless it's extreme, uh, people like Facebook and Twitter and others can't do it and won't do it. Well, and the phrase uh, made so famous is, you know, there are alternate facts. In fact, that's true. There are alternate facts. There are different realities. So you see the same event, the same situation through a fundamentally different lens. But some alternate facts are simply lies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And some are alternate facts. Right. Some are an alternate way of looking at things. Uh, And uh, one of the biggest Trump negative contributions so far has to completely confuse that line. Mm -hmm. Uh, When they say, when his spokespeople, you just want to throttle them, I must say, uh, talk about alternative facts, they're talking about lies. They're talking about lies he tells, knowing uh, he who knows whether he knows or not. Uh, but they know it's a lie, and then they say it's not a lie. It's an alternative fact, and it terrifies uh, others, uh, opinion makers who are afraid to take them on. I, I want to start to wrap things up here because, and I know these are impossible questions, but I I, I do want to talk to you all and hear you all on leadership not specific individuals necessary. You don't need to say whether you like the, the men and women running things. What, what do you think we need now in terms of leadership? What kind of person is it that can do this job? Um, you know, I'm thinking back to, to Reagan. Everybody said he was the movie star. There was nothing there. In a sense, he ended up being um, a good president because he could just present a script, tell a story, bring people along? Or do we need people that are more expert in very complicated fields so that they can pick and choose? Do we need to narrow down what politics focuses on? I know a lot of ideas there. Michael, jump in. Well, look, the most important thing is working almost backwards is you better have a very good communicator because Mm -hmm. no matter what the ideas are, uh, if the individual can't get them across in language that the average person can understand, you're going to have a a big problem. So the idea itself can be complex, but its explanation has to be very simple or it can't be done. And unfortunately, of course, that leads to the possibility of telling lies because lies are the easiest things to to put in simple language. Uh, And if you've got someone who's a good communicator and good salesman, uh, he can very easily, as the president has shown, convince people that lies are in fact not lies, but the truth. So uh, I don't think that that you you want an expert. An expert, in fact, is likely to be a disaster because the expert will want to get all down into the nitty gritty of the details. Uh, the individual leader needs experts around them so that the ideas can be developed and they can know what they're doing. But uh, Ron Reagan's the best example of a leader who's a fabulous communicator. And that is really the single most important skill for a national leader or a provincial leader today. Hugh, you and I had the conversation recently about one of the um, uh, critiques or analysis of Donald Trump is that he actually can't express himself very well. And I was watching in the wake of RBG's death, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, he, he 
he was caught. He was surprised. He didn't hear it. The reporter asked him a question and he just, he said she was an amazing woman. She had an amazing life. It was amazing. She was amazing. Um, and that was it. And we hear words like sad, good, bad. Uh, yet he's quite a powerful communicator, even though the vocabulary is pretty limited. Well, I would argue, and this makes Michael's point, is that the, the his limited vocabulary uh, probably forces him, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, to say things in ways that are likely to produce more uh, disagreement and negative reaction. Uh, if you think about the uh, the famous quote in the wood in the Woodward book, mm -hmm. um, you know uh, the notion that a leader would say, "Look, uh, we knew this was a very serious virus, but I had a duty as president to address the seriousness, but also to make sure that people were bucked up, yeah. because as a country we could beat this if we engaged." Well, instead, <laughs> he expressed it in terms of. Well, you know, you gotta, you can't, you gotta, I gotta be a cheerleader, you got, and right. that appeared to be as if he was purposefully, and who knows what the truth is, yeah. purposefully hiding something. When he was doing what most leaders would do is say, On the other hand, he rally. was completely yeah. inarticulate in yeah. the way he expressed it. Yeah. So I think that's been one of his, uh, but the other thing that I would say um, we need, and I, this goes back to my bias about people who I think have been very successful. You really need good communicators who also have a very heavy, sincere dose of humility. Mm -hmm. uh, makes a big difference. Um, and I think of Ronald Reagan. I mean, Ronald Reagan would start some of his most extreme speeches with 20 minutes of jokes about himself, right. making fun of himself. Can anybody imagine Mr. Trump ever doing that? It's completely oh, inconceivable. Exactly. Uh, Bill Davis did the same. Uh, other leaders have done that in the past, and and it, it, Canadians look for that legitimate humility, so they don't. So the leaders haven't kind of lost contact with who they work for and what they do and where they're from. And I think when you do lose that contact, that's when you get a huge chasm between public political context and what the leader's trying to do. Jerry. Uh on that, and I mean, you're both talking about authenticity under that ability to communicate it, but even authenticity has become a construct, right? And that's a little troubling. Jerry, sorry, jump jump in. That's okay. Uh, we, we may all be on the same page here. I use a different word, a different phrase. I always was struck by Donald Thumper McDonald's uh, word about himself, that he didn't have the royal jelly. Mm-hmm. And I think if we look back at the last five years in Canadian political history, you'll see exactly what it means. That man whose name I can never remember, who was what, the leader of the Conservative Party? Who was that? Him. <laughs> Which leader, one? Wasn't there? <laughs> From Saskatchewan, Mr. Shear. That's it, yes. Uh, I can okay. never remember that name. <laughs> Glad uh, to be Mr. helpful. Mr. Shear, it's now seemed almost universally agreed, had no royal jelly whatsoever. Right. It came out in different ways. He never seemed to have anything important to say. He never stopped reading from a page, so it was, didn't seem to belong to him at all. Uh, and here comes O'Toole, not a great star in the uh, political firmament, but within a month he has managed to get people to talk about him being an entire different entity from Mr. Whoever he was. Um, and, and, and I agree with that. I have no idea what O'Toole has said in the last month, but even I fear, feel he has more uh, weight 
and more substance. Uh, not quite charisma, but he has something that allows you to think he could do it, where Scheer never had that capacity. I supported Mulcair way back when, uh, because it seemed to me self-evident if you saw all the NDP candidates together on a stage speaking, that only one of them could move the next day into the prime minister's chair. And that was Mulcair who had this quality about him, this uh, royal jelly. Uh, so that's what I uh, look for, but it contains the attributes that both Michael and you talk about. I think it actually should be Hugh as the next uh, prime minister myself. <laughs> uh, Michael, I know you were trying to get in. I think the other thing that we didn't mention, which is really critical, is that it depends on how the individual comes across on television. Right. And not what they're saying. If you really want to know how a leader is coming across on television, listen to a speech or an interview, but turn the volume down. And when you haven't heard a word they've said, ask yourself yep. what you like them or not. The problem that Shear had, and isn't that not his fault in the slightest? The problem he had was he had dimples. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to think that anybody is being really tough and serious if they've got dimples, because it always looks like they're smiling. And and no matter there was no way he could have overcome that in terms of the 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 image and the the visceral reaction. I mean, Jerry puts it perfectly. Mm -hmm. That's the that's why suddenly he never felt sure was like that. And he has a different uh, view of the new story. But on the other hand, you've got the prime minister with where with most people reacting to great hair uh, and that presence on television. I'm not sure that's royal jelly in the, well, in some, the sense. Some, some people react just because there's hair to begin with. <laughs> yes. From you my, can, from my you can perspective, that. That, that, stri <laughs> that strikes me as a plus. Sour grapes. Sour grapes. <laughs> <laughs> But but go with that. I you know that yeah. I mean it does matter what you see on television. There's a comfort level. There's a connection. It is hard to lie when you turn the sound down because then right. people do make right. a judgment on whether you're commuting communicating something and whether that is real or whether it's a staged um, performance. I never shared the view of the prime minister as a young, sexy, uh, up and coming peer like figure. I, I I can never see him without thinking that he just had his bar mitzvah. You know, he <laughs> seems like a, a kid to me. Hard for a Catholic, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. <laughs> My yeah, but but you know, just, let me, I'll just say this. About, I'll say this about the prime minister. And I've, I've never voted liberal ever federally in an election in my entire life. <laughs> uh, I would say that what he did represent when he took on Mr. Harper, who, after all, was a very accomplished political leader who had great strengths, mm -hmm. was he was better able to express the country's desire for hope and change. Right. And however people may now think that was all cynical, I think it looked and appeared to be quite sincere then. And that's an important thing that a leader has to be able to do. You have to reflect not only what you believe in yourself, but what you believe the country really wants. And I think Justin Trudeau did that extremely well in 15. And then when Mulcair decided uh, that he was going to be a, a zero deficit guy, mm -hmm. they were cheering on the liberal bus because it gave the liberals right. the, 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 the leverage on that issue to say, well, actually, we're going to invest in some things that need investment where we're deeply underfunded. And that was very helpful to the legitimacy of his campaign. And his personality was supportive of that.
Pat, Pat the, the, the comment Huey made about the way you have to come across, uh, I remember testing some focus groups with some ads for um, a David Peterson campaign when he was uh, premier. And we showed this one ad and a lot of people liked it, but there was this one lady in, in the focus group who didn't like it at all. And she said, so I, she was pressed to explain why she didn't like it and she couldn't quite. And then she says, I finally got it. He doesn't fake sincerity. Well, <laughs> and there was actually an expectation that he should. <laughs> yes. Sometimes the era, the era passes the leader by, by, by. this happened in my life, most prominently with Tommy Douglas. And we now forget that. Uh, he became leader in 1961 because he was seen to be able to bring to Canada what he had brought to Saskatchewan, uh, charisma and excitement and firm policies that he understood perfectly well and a way to deal with people on an individual and collective basis. And by the time I got back from Africa, which was the late 60s, uh, he was already being uh, dis being described by... Uh, by the younger new members of the NDP as yesterday's man. <laughs> that's when, uh, for those who, are, who remember Esoterica, that's when the waffle came along because these were a group of young people who said Tommy was terrific in Saskatchewan, but now he's just uh, out of touch with Canada. Although he was saying nothing different, which maybe was the problem. Whatever the new ethos of Canada was, and I guess it had something to do with the tumult in the United States and the killings in the United States, uh, Tommy didn't reflect that he was still talking to a group of farmers in uh, your town in Saskatchewan. <laughs> Good old Medina. Hugh, you, you I was going to say, I remember when David Lewis retired and Bob Stanfield got up to pay tribute to him in Parliament. And he said, don't be troubled by the waffle, Mr. Lewis. There's always people... Uh, who uh, disagree. Uh, in, in your party, it's called the waffle. In the Liberal Party, it's called the cabinet. And in my party, it's called the general membership. <laughs> is that a true story? It is a true story. It is an absolute true story. story. You've told it's a great Stanfield story. It is indeed. Uh, it's just been wonderful to reconnect. And honestly, I think it's a history lesson and a political science lesson. And it's also very instructive about what issues we all have to be thinking about in terms of leadership in our country and what we want and how we manage these. Um, so, you know what, I think, I think we should get the oldies, but goldies back again at some other point. You, you up for that? Sure. I'll find sure. you. I'll find you. Thank you so much. Hugh Siegel and Michael Kirby and Jerry Kaplan. Uh, it, it, it was a very long Thursday morning session, but, uh, it was really, really worth it. Thank you, Senator. Can I take my nap now? Yeah, you can have your nap now, Jerry. You can read and rest. I don't want to read. I just want to rest. Okay. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care, guys. You too. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye, guys. <laughs>